Well, a couple of years ago, I went on a conference with some pastors, and there were about 40 of us in this room, and they hired a speaker to come um, who was a successful uh, church planter, uh, one who starts new churches, and his model of of starting these churches was a little different than some. He had created a house church movement across this city. And I, I don't remember if it was Denver or Boulder, but it was in Colorado. And these churches were um, basically limited to the size of a house, however many they could hold. And it had grown to about 350 people were meeting regularly in, in this setting. And as backdrop, you need to understand that he was at a church like this one, and he burned out of Sunday morning preaching and all that's put into basically pulling off another Sunday. And he stepped out of leadership for a while and then just started sharing the gospel with people and this house church movement started. And he, after a while, it got so big that they did start meeting in bigger groups on Sunday mornings and it looked like every other church. And he, but he didn't want it to be like every other church. And so when people started coming on the Sunday mornings, but they weren't engaged in the small groups and the life of discipleship, as soon as he saw somebody was there for about three or so weeks in a row, he would invite them to coffee and he would take them out and he would share the vision of the church, how it got started, what mattered to the church. And, he, and then he would say something like this, if you're interested in really good preaching and really good music, there are dozens of churches with that in this city that can serve you on Sunday morning. If you want to be part of this church, the invitation is to come and die with us. And that was how he did every newcomer's interaction come and die with us. He was inviting them to a deeper kind of transformation, the kind of discipleship that says, daily take up your cross and follow Jesus. Not surprisingly, a number of people left. They didn't want that. Because in our, our country, and even in the church at times, we have kind of a tepid interest in the gospel. Like, it's okay, I want a little bit of Jesus, it's a compartment I should have, you know, I belong to, I have a job, and I have some hobbies, and I've got my family, and I should have a church, and it's just one compartment of many. And it turns into this sort of in-between thing, this kind of half measure. Let me ask you a question that I was asking myself, convicted myself of actually this week as I studied our text. Do you and do I pray more for God to bless me or for God to change me? And I'll confess to you that I, I'm so used to saying God bless me or God bless this or bless that person. I'm asking God to help what they're doing and not so bold in praying, God, would you change this person's heart? God, would you change me so that I want the things of your kingdom? Instead of God, here's my agenda. This is what I've been working on. Hopefully it's in your kingdom, but would you bless it? And so Jesus is made out to be sort of like an add-on, something that will, uh, it's an option for your life, something that can help what already is going mostly in a good direction. The problem with that is that's not the Jesus of the scriptures. He's never left neutral. He's, He's a divisive figure if you read the Jesus of the Bible. He's somebody who who is binary in his message, and he lays out some hard teachings. And I wonder if you were to right now explain to somebody who Jesus is, would the words that you use be consistent with what scripture shows, or is it more of an imagined Jesus figure? That's why as Christians, we have to keep going back to the scriptures and make sure we are reading what it actually says about him because we will fantasize a Jesus. We will make up a God that serves us, that blesses us, that will add to what we're already doing instead of the figure that's in the scriptures and in history who went in and said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. 
and he caused a major fraction in, in the community where he was. The modified Jesus that we like removes guilt, but doesn't go in and do surgery on sinfulness, right? I want, I want my sins forgiven. I want to be assured of heaven, but that transformation stuff, you can, you can keep that. I only want part of the message, right? Is that not very common, in the, certainly in the world, but even in us, if we're honest? The radical transformation is frightening. And the real Jesus, the Jesus of the scriptures, he offers a lot more than we actually expect, but then he demands even more than we're aware of as we come in. So if there's a word that I want to put on this, it's more. More is the word for this morning. Expect more of Jesus and understand that he expects more of you. But the blessing is there. The Bible calls this good news. Good news. So as you're sharing your faith with a friend or someone else, do you mention repentance? Do you mention the cost? Do you mention that sin is contrary to the kingdom of God and it has to be dealt with? Or do you lay it out more like Jesus loves you and he died for your sins and you can be forgiven and neglect the cost of discipleship in the message? Because it's definitely part of it. And it's good news. The Bible calls this good news. If you want to save your life, you actually have to lose it. If you want to follow me, Jesus says, you have to daily take up an instrument of death. Take up your cross daily and follow me. That means you have to daily put to death things that are not part of his kingdom and part of discipleship. Now, we're in this series of Epiphany, and as the screen says, the subtitle that I've given it is Christ Revealed. That's what Epiphany is about. It's, it's revealing things of Christ. And we go to the scriptures to see who God is. And when we see Christ, we then know who the Father is, is what he teaches us. We want to make sure that we are, we are in the word and not just making up ideas about who Jesus is. The scriptures are our authority. Beware the Christ of your imagination, Worship the Christ of the Word. Now, what I want to do with this text today, and you can turn there, it's page 857, is I want to look at expectation. What Simeon the prophet was expecting, and then what we should expect of Jesus when we come to him. So page 800, and I think it's 857 maybe, um, in the Pew Bibles, if you want to go there. And as you're getting there, let me, ex let me explain what the event was into which this prophet Simeon speaks. This was the presentation of Jesus in the temple when he's basically 40 days old. 40 days old. And this was according to the law in Leviticus that any good Jew would have upheld. And Jesus' family, Mary and Joseph, they were faithful so don't think he was some, in some radical family that wasn't central to the life of Israel, even though he challenged a lot of Israel. His family raised him in the, the covenant. So what it says in Leviticus 12 is when you give birth to a son, after he, you circumcise him on the eighth day, and then 33 days later, you take him and present him to the Lord. And it, and it specifies two kinds of offerings you're supposed to make. A burnt offering of a lamb, and then a sin offering of a dove. But if you're too poor to afford a lamb, then your burnt offering can be also a dove. And it's, it tells us here that they brought two doves, which tells us something too about Jesus. Not only were his parents faithful, his, worldly, his earthly family was faithful, they were poor. They couldn't afford the burnt offering of the lamb. These offerings had different meanings too. The burnt offering was sort of a thanksgiving offering to praise God for a, a healthy baby, give thanks for that. But the sin offering says something automatically that we don't like. It says this baby is a sinner too. Now Jesus was not sinful, but he was brought forward because he perfectly identified with the sinful humanity he had come to save. 
But we don't like to think of that when we see a new baby. We think, oh, so innocent, so precious. But what the scripture says is that this baby was conceived in sin, steeped in sin, and that needs to be atoned for. So you bring this offering of this dove as a sin offering for that baby. Now, we don't do that anymore because we have a perfect offering of Christ that covers our sin on the cross. But it's helpful to understand the context. They were bringing Jesus into the temple, and then this character Simeon, this prophet, comes up. Now, what was Simeon expecting? First of all, it says that he was expecting in verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. That word, the consolation of Israel, they were occupied by the Roman government. They were serving and paying taxes to Rome. And this was all part of the promise of God that if they disobeyed his covenant, that they would be exiled, that they would, they would have Gentiles in their courts, that they would have to suffer this. But the prophets were speaking of restoration. Not only would they be restored to the land, but things would be made perfect. And this was all part of the comfort and the consolation of the Lord. In their immediate context, that meant to them getting Rome out of Jerusalem so that they could go back to a theocracy. But it was even more than that. It was supposed to be global in nature. And as Simeon says, this is going to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles as well as for the glory to your people Israel. So the scope of this was big. And that's what he was waiting for. God is going to come and make everything right. Also, it says that he, was, he had been told by the Holy Spirit in verse 26 that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, Jesus Christ, that name, that's not like Mike McDonald. Jesus isn't his first name and Christ his last name, although it has become a proper name for him. It's actually a title, Jesus the Christ. It means the anointed one of God. It's the one who's the Messiah, the one who is set aside and described in the prophets, especially Isaiah, as the suffering servant who had an anointed task to go and die on the cross and, and restore. He was the Christ. And the Holy Spirit told this prophet that he would get to see the physical Christ before the prophet was to die. And so that's what happens in this, this account. And when he sees Jesus, he goes over and he takes the baby from Mary into his arms. And then he, and then he gives a very eloquent um, prophetic word. He says in verse 29, a prayer, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Let me pause there. The word of the Lord always comes true. He said something to Simeon and then he did it. When the Lord tells us something, he always does it. Lord, you can now dismiss your servant in peace according to your word, because my eyes have seen your Savior. And then he says, uh, my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So he knows this is salvation. He's expecting a Savior. And in Christ, we find that person. Now, again, back to the American church for a minute. If you've been around certain teaching within the church, salvation has been truncated down to a moment in time when you said a sinner's prayer and you were regenerated or born again, or you had new life and the Holy Spirit was in you. And that is a part of salvation. But sometimes the message has been repent, accept Jesus. And then when you die, you go to heaven. And there's this huge gap in your life between when I got saved, there's that term, got saved, salvation, and then the rest of my life. But if you look at the scripture, salvation in that word in particular, it's much bigger. It's not just 
praying that first prayer and being made alive in Christ, it actually is about wholeness. It's about healing. It's about a transformation of heart and desires. It's about learning to worship and serve and pray. It's about uh, the restoration of relationships in, in the community. It's about membership and using your gifts in the body, which is the church. So in that moment of repentance and the first part of being saved, it deals with the penalty of sin, which is eternal separation from God. It also sets you free from the power of sin. You now, now don't have to succumb to sin. The Holy Spirit in your life is giving you the ability to walk in a different way. And then it also gives you the hope that one day the presence entirely of sin will be gone. That includes the, the, the devil, Satan, being dealt with. So sin in your heart, sin in the world, and then evil, resident evil that is here. All that's part of salvation. It's much bigger. That's what he was looking for. And when he saw Jesus, he saw salvation. Now what about us? What do we expect when we come to Jesus? What were you expecting? If you're a Christian, what were you looking for when you first found him? Maybe you weren't looking for anything and he simply found you, which is usually the case. But then what are you expecting in the pursuit of him? Well, the first thing that this passage says to me is that it is not neutral. He is not neutral. If you go down to uh, verse 30, 34, after, he, after Simeon the prophet prays that, that eloquent prayer, then he goes over to Mary and Joseph, and he says this to, the, to, to Mary, his mother. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there's a little parenthesis in there. And he also says to her, and a sword will pierce your own soul as well. Speaking, of course, of her having to watch her son die on a cross and what that would do to her soul. So Jesus is not neutral, He's, he's divisive. His teachings are. They're very binary. So it says the fall and the rising of many. Speaking of the rising being, being into heaven and the fall into hell. Elsewhere he talks about a separation of the sheep from the goats. He talks about two paths. One is a wide path that leads to destruction and one is a narrow path that leads to life. And everywhere you go in the scriptures you see Jesus dividing right down the middle. At one point he said, don't think that I've come to bring peace. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, he did come to bring peace, but the way that he gets to peace is with the sword. It involves a, a huge intrusion into the lives and hearts of people. At the nine o'clock service, uh, Kalina, our accompanist who plays the piano and uh, has been on our prayer list for the last three weeks, uh, I got a follow-up from her on her surgery. Uh, you know, these names get on the prayer list and we pray for people and you don't usually get the full backdrop, but in her case, she had a very danger, dangerous aneurysm in her brain and it had to be dealt with. And so we were praying for three weeks for that to be stable until the doctors could go in and get it. And I asked her how it went. And she said, the doctor said that up here that went fine. But she said, my leg hurts because they had to go in with a scope and it, it bruised her leg. And, it, and she's like, I'm in a lot of pain. And what we would like is for a doctor to be able to work on the inside without any uh, intrusion, right? We want the surgeon to not need the scalpel, just get the tumor out or get whatever it is. But that's not how it works. It's not how it works spiritually either. That the Lord goes in and it cuts and then he deals with things and then we're healed, we're restored. Everything that Jesus asked, I mean, almost every one of his questions is about a heart issue. 
I mean, even the very first recorded words in Luke's gospel, which come a little later in chapter two, he's 12 years old. He stayed up at the temple, uh, sitting under the feet of the teachers, amazing them with his insights and his question. And when Mary and Joseph and their whole big caravan of family members head back to their town, they travel for a while thinking Jesus is with their cousins, but he's not. He's back in the temple. And they have three anxious days of going back to look for him. And when they find him, do you know what he says? The rec- first recorded words of scripture in, of, of Jesus in Luke are two questions. Why were you looking for me? And did you not know that I would be in my father's house? Those were the first two things he said at the age of 12. They're questions, and in both cases, those questions cut to the heart of Mary and Joseph. You are thinking I'm going to be a normal son. I'm not. I'm the son of God. I've come for a different mission. Do you not know what my mission is? And that's hard for them. Jesus asks questions in the scripture, and those questions reveal our hearts. And that's what he is. He's a heart surgeon. He works on us. He, with the sword, it goes on. The thoughts of many hearts may be revealed in verse 35, and a sword will pierce through your own soul as well. The gospel is not the gospel if it lacks repentance, if it lacks a willingness to hand over to the great surgeon those things that are killing us. As you know, I was on a retreat last week with a bunch of leaders, and we were in a very beautiful place, and um, that was by design. And, and one of the, every day there's something geographical in the beauty of God's creation that lines up with the teaching that we're doing for these, they're all senior pastors in the Anglican church. Um, there were 12 of us there, one was a bishop. Um, and this one day, we, we actually go ashore, and we go up onto this pretty high peak, we hike up to the peak, and from there you can see two kinds of water. And one, it's, on, it's a thing called Salt Island. And it's where they used to make salt by damming up ocean water and then letting the sun evaporate it and then scraping the salt residue off of the, the rim around the lake. And they don't make salt that way anymore, thankfully. And um, this lake is there just as a stagnant lake. And it's only like 100 feet from the ocean where the dam is. And you can stand on the top and you can look down. And it's, it smells bad. It's full of minerals, so there's nothing swimming in it. There's no life in it. There are flies all over it, and it's brown. And then 100 feet on the other side is turquoise blue ocean water with turtles swimming in it and fish and nice little rolling waves crashing on these beautiful rocks. And we stand there, and we ask the guys this question. What in your life is leading to death, stagnation, and, and, and to death? And what in your life is bringing actual spiritual life? And we look at the scriptures and we, we lead them into a time of repentance. And we have confession available there with Bishop Trevor. And then we have healing prayer available. And after that, each man takes a rock and we cast it into the ocean. And you look out at the horizon and it's amazing. And, and just like the scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgression from you. And we go back down to the rest of the retreat feeling cleansed, feeling whole. But it's hard work. Nobody wants to have that incision. We we don't want to take that, whatever it is, that death that is in our life, we don't want to take it to the Lord. But if we do, he heals us. And then we experience something that is so good. So Jesus wants to give us more, but he's expecting more daily. Let me give you a picture of what the promise is of just some of what we get when we walk in the Lord's ways. This is from the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and he describes his prayer for the Christians, the saints that are there. 
you would think this might be a prayer for those who are not yet saved, but it's actually a prayer for the church. He says, I am praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The very power that was at work that brought the Son of God back from the grave to resurrected life is available for you and I. It's the kind of thing that God wants to do in our hearts. He wants to transform us. And are we asking him, God, change me? Or are we praying, God, bless me? God, change me or God, bless me? Now, here's what's so good about the good news. That those with nothing spiritually to offer, the down and out, the broken, the sinners, the ones who are wrecked spiritually, those who have nothing to offer are accepted when they come to the Lord. Now, here's the hard part, though. Unless you come with nothing, you're not accepted. When you come thinking, I have some real spiritual merit here, God. I'm bringing it to you so you can make it better. That's not how you come to Christ. You don't come that way. You come by saying, I'm broken and I want you to change me and heal me. Deal with this sin. Take it out of my life because I can't do it. I need you. That's a prayer of repentance. And it's on the other side of that prayer that we experience that, those immeasurable riches and all, that amazing, uh, all those amazing promises. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That's the promise of scripture. One last thing, as you consider your testimony and sharing your faith with other people, don't be surprised when it is not immediately received as good news. Don't be surprised when there is opposition, hesitation, even persecution, because people don't like to hear that they're sinful. People want to hear that they're good. And the gospel, the gospel, what's in here, shows Jesus not offering that. He's saying, you're not good. That's why I am good and went to the cross for you. And it requires a daily dying so that he can transform us. So I want to invite you to pray with me now. And whatever you might be holding on to that is death in your heart, that you would give it up to him so that he can change you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, this is good news. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your presence here with us. We give you our hearts. We figuratively hold them out before your throne and we invite you to transform us, that you would take our hearts and make them like yours. We wanna be more like your son, Jesus. So we ask you to heal us and we thank you for the great promises of scripture. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.